Welcome to Women Make Science Fiction. I'm Amy Chambers. And I'm Lyle Skeens. And when you're hosts until they replace us with robots. Or men. Today we have a very special guest with us to uh, talk about the Wachowskis' uh, Jupiter Ascending. Uh, Cheryl Morgan has joined us. Cheryl, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, hello, everybody. And I'm, I'm glad that you did do the traditional introduction to that, because that then allows me to make the joke about how once this goes out, you're going to be attacked by a whole pile of so-called gender critical people who will be saying, now your podcast has been taken over by men. Because oh, as a guest, and we're talking about Wojcicki's. But, you know, yes. these people are a blight upon the internet, and I apologize deeply for them. Um, you will bring them on. Them, but there you go. Yeah, being anyway. a woman on the internet was like, it was like a defining moment when you get called something truly horrendous, and you're like, oh, I have become. Mm-hmm. A woman on the internet. <laughs> Sorry, continue. Exactly. Uh, so, yes, hello, I am Cheryl Morgan. I am a science fiction critic, um, publisher, um, writer, historian. I do science fiction stuff. I do trans history. I talk a lot um, and read lots of books and write about them. Um, Your job sounds amazing. Yep. And I was (laughs) also, as far as I know, the first openly trans person to win a Hugo Award, which, you know. I did not know that. I didn't know that. That's amazing. Yay. I mean, the Hugos are getting better. There's still a big fight behind the scenes, but... Yeah. I mean, Charlie Jane Anders has won one for fiction now, which I mean, makes the whole thing much better, but I won one... Well, I won my first one in 2004, but I wasn't out then. But when I won one in 2009, I was most definitely out because somebody had decided to out me on Wikipedia. Wow. <laughs> Rude. Yeah. Oh, God. You know. It's the internet as this sort of like amazing community and space that can bring people together and then rip them apart at the same but time. also and... hell on earth. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting to see how people's different responses are to online spaces in terms of whether they're safe, whether it's a community and always being caught in that dichotomy between the two. That it, on one hand, it gives you that community, it gives you that space, but also at the same time, it's the place where people will attack you most cruelly because of anonymity because of the safety of that sort of uh, space for cruelty as well as community yeah but we're not talking about the matrix until later amy <laughs> <laughs> thank <Nice>. you <laughs> so the reason that we are looking at the is it wachowski or wachowski because i went to a talk the other side that day that said wachowski all the way through and i was like have i been saying it wrong I would My have whole said life. Wachowski, but... Uh, Let's go with Wachowski. I believe in us. Let's go with that. Yeah. Um, hey, hey, listening. Hi, Lana and Lily. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, my God, we would melt. We would just be <laughs> puddles of oh, my godness. <laughs> so the reason that we're looking at uh, Jupiter Ascending is that we've obviously had a, a bit of a hiatus. The online teaching practically killed me. So um, my beautiful idea of being able to do this fun project whilst also teaching sort of fell apart. So it's nice to be back and looking at films again. So I caught up with most of my reviews. Um, I've only got the bad batch to do and I'm most of the way through that now. We watched um, that. I know that we watched that. We watched the bad batch. It was it was another mad desert wasteland dystopia uh but this time it was with jason momoa playing a cannibal there it is um so (laughs) i wanted us to come back 
was something that was quite classically science fiction because we've looked at a lot of stuff that's very much on the periphery of the definition as it's often fiction that is related to science or is a space fiction so we did high life which sort of again is on that edge we looked at um evolution which again is on that fantasy science fiction edge uh little joe so we've had quite a few sort of quite abstract art filmy uh examples so i wanted to do something that was very much space opera um and as we did that we want we want an expert someone who can actually speak about this from a expert perspective rather than us just going we can talk I, about this sort of vaguely around the edges from a woman's perspective, uh-huh. but actually having that sort of um, expertise, I think is really important when you're having these types of conversations. And part of our difficult conversation um, was why I hadn't included all of the work um, of the Wachowskis. Um, the conversation that started when I first started this project, looking at women in science fiction and speaking to one of my students um, about the trans readings of um the Matrix, Matrix. um, and why wasn't I including the Wachowskis on that particular project as fully? Um, And then when we spoke to Cheryl, actually further thinking about actually why don't we include all of the Wachowskis' work? Because it's not that they were ever not women, it's just that they didn't necessarily present in that way. They didn't have that coming out uh, experience. So I sort of... I also think that, I mean, the both of us... I mean, we're cis, it het-ish women. We say het-ish. Um, but, you know, we have had to learn a lot about uh, the trans experience and and what that means. And so, you know, coming, you know, and we don't have that perspective. And although we may have trans women in our lives, uh, you know, I'm I'm glad that that we have been able to to at least have Cheryl on and, and have you on and, and and make us think about those things because, you know, as we were talking about why we're watching Jupiter Sunday, I, I do think I turned to Amy and went, wait, what, why isn't the Matrix on here? What what was our decision making there? And, um, you know, that we can go back and fix that, I think is um, good. And also it lets us view it with a different lens than the, the super hyper masculine lens that we would have looked at it with in 1999. Yeah, I mean, from my point of view, I think this idea that that trans people are suddenly one thing and then become another is a a real problem with the cis gays. Um, And you you see that um, quite a lot with the treatment of trans children, for example, parents say, oh, my child suddenly became trans. Well, no, they didn't. They always were. The kids have been agonizing for years as to whether they dare tell mum and dad and finally, they've got up the courage to do it. And mum and dad said, oh, this must be new. They must have caught it from someone at school. Mm. It doesn't work like that. It took me decades to get up the courage to tell anyone. Obviously, things were different back in the 20th century. It was much harder to come out then. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the Wachowskis knew who they were a long time before they made The Matrix. And I'm sure that that they would both want to be to have those films included in films made by women. I think also our our perspective that the Matrix didn't fit into this list was part of the the problem that is part of the gender critical thing is oh, 
uh, you know, they benefited from the cishet male system. And so let's not look at the work that, that they did when they were, you know, before they transitioned. And, you know, that's not the right way of thinking about it. It's, it's, it's a very closed-minded way of looking at it. And, you know, as we learn and, and get better at it, um, you know, to see actually these are people who would have been, as you say, struggling their entire lives to deal with this. And, and, and now that we can look back and see, you can absolutely see the struggle in their work and what the way that they're writing and that the way that they're making things and the way that they're representing these people, um, you know, we didn't know it then, but that's, that's a very internalized struggle that's coming out in the artwork. And so it's very disingenuous, as you say, to think that there's a, a cutoff where, you know, that, that once they were men and now they're, no, they were always women, as you say, and they were struggling with that process for us as well of learning that (sighs) distinction is the wrong word when we're trying to avoid a binary but realizing that that's how it works because we don't have that experience or anything similar that we can compare it to to have felt that there was something that was that needed to change externally or internally um we just I don't have that yeah, you, you've also got the fact, of course, that they were trying to make a trans allegory at the time, and some of the things that they wanted to do, the studio wouldn't let them. So uh, Warner Brother restricted and rewrote. Yep. They got to where Which... they were with a certain amount of male privilege, but that wasn't sufficient to allow them to make the film that they wanted. Which makes their experience as as filmmakers of science fiction very in line with the other women science fiction filmmakers that that we've looked at is there was so much compromising on all of these uh for them to get films made and a lot of times to the detriment of the the vision for the film to the detriment of the film um because they got shoehorned into this awful paradigm stereotypes and what audiences want so i'm i'm still learning and i'm sure that i'm going to say things that don't that please correct me and I I want to learn in order to make sure that I am not falling into uh obvious traps and mistakes um because I want to be better um in terms of understanding um those narratives especially as it's a project for me where I want to talk about women which means that I want to talk about all women not just uh, a particular sort of idea of of what a woman is or can be um and I'm actually really glad that we started with Jupiter Ascending because it is such a joy of a film. I I really, really enjoyed it uh, both times. When I saw it at the cinema, I remember just being really overwhelmed. Um, and then when we watched it on Friday, having some basic idea of what the plot was allowed us just to sort of a- enjoy what was happening on screen. It was a, <laughs> a very similar experience to what happened when we watched uh, Tank Girl. <laughs> where we spent the first, I guess, what? <laughs> we don't Why know what's going on, sequence but now, we're but we really fun. loved it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I was really excited when Cheryl said, "Yes, you come and join us," because um, she was a fan of Jupiter Ascending, which is always a nice thing to hear, rather than it's not very fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> yeah, but you know, men. <laughs> yeah, right. They, they don't appreciate. And I mean, we we in watching Jupiter Ascending, I I 
it was very interesting that you can see this like there's so many actors from sense8 um and you kind of it's almost this like middle ground which it kind of is between uh the matrix and sense8 in terms of that evolution of filmmaking and saying what they really wanted to say um and i'm glad that they got the space for sense8 to really go okay this is a full-on story world let's actually develop it because it it does feel like what did i say it's it's cos cosmic narrative breadth and itty bitty feature film space um where they're trying to pack all of this stuff into Jupiter Ascending. It's this massive world and world building, which I love. Um, but then, you know, you've got 90 minutes or so that in, in which to tell. Two it. hours and seven minutes. Two hours and seven minutes, sorry. <laughs> but who cares? You know, it's, it's just totally over the top glorious. And it's not really supposed to make that much sense. It, it's just one long love letter to science fiction films with a feminist twist to it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, you can definitely see that in, in so many different references and, uh, you know, inspirations and homages. And, and I like the um, very niche references to Brazil and forms and, mm -hmm. and, uh, having Terry Gillum in there as well as a, as a cameo, you can sort of see that, that love of science fiction um, and the fact that they're able to contribute this amazing piece of space opera because they have created an iconic piece of, of science fiction, a piece of science fiction that shifts the landscape of what we expect from screen science fiction. So although there are issues in terms of, of what they were permitted to do with The Matrix, I feel there's this sort of like, joy in just cramming it with so many different things and and people and characters and why not have a was a lycantant splice rocket boot wearing albino elf man winged Channing Tatum <laughs> whom we lovingly call potato head yes. we love him very very we very love him much. very much I will watch anything with Channing Tatum in, but he does absolutely nothing for me. He's just, he's just so heterosexual and I just don't understand it. And it just, I just don't understand. No, but he's so lovely, like a puppy he dog. Is. Yeah. Yes. So. He's a very good puppy dog. Mm. Yes. Mm -hmm. He's a, a lovely um, space puppy. Uh, and I love that sequence where she's trying to like, where Jupiter's trying to uh, comfort Kane, which is the space puppy, um, where she says, I love dogs. I've always loved dogs. And you're just like, oh, no. I no, that was know. not the way to, no, that was not the way to his heart, I don't think. But I thought the splicing was really interesting, that there were lots of characters that were created and were purposely multiple genetic uh, markers and identities mixed together. Um, so you have um, Stinger, who is literally part B, which was not very subtle. Uh, no. <laughs> naming. It's Sean Bean. And he's Sean. lived. I know. It's so weird to have Sean Bean survive an entire show. You're like, well, he's going to yeah. die now. It's just any minute. He's, there's some, yeah. Something's coming. 
It makes you want to message Sean Bean and be like, are you okay? You lived in a movie. <laughs> Something wrong. <laughs> uh, but I think trying to like pin down what the narrative was, um, I only really, really recently realized, as in today, that Jupiter is the genetic reincarnation of the sibling's mother. mother. Yep. I was like, I knew she was a reincarnation of like goddess type figure, but I hadn't made the in the mother connection. And I was like, oh, oh bless your little heart. Oh. Which makes the marrying her oh. extra creepy. Yeah. Ugh. Yes, there's a whole lot of weird family dynamics going on in that movie. Very much so. And I just. But totally typical of royal families. Hmm. For real. <laughs> <laughs> we can neither confirm to... nor deny. <laughs> A few more Germans. Uh, but yeah, it's... Too many Brits. I think... I just loved Eddie Redmayne. I love... I remember him from the first time I saw it and the second time, which is like... Because you know he's capable as an actor of such subtlety. And yet he is Godzilla-ing all over this film. And it's just, it's so much fun because you're getting like Gary Oldman from The Fifth Element and, you know, these just massively huge villains. And it's, it's fun. You actually have a fun villain. You're like, okay, you're beautiful. And I, you know, it's, it's the a precursor like to Loki of like super duper fun. We just love to be with this villain. And I think that he, he was able to sell that and and still be beautiful, beautiful Eddie Redmayne. The theory of everything was this, the same year or the year before. So you'd had this like crip face, I recognize, but mm-hmm. beautiful performance regard- regardless. And then he comes into uh, Jupiter Ascending and goes full Alan Rickman. It's sort <laughs> of Alan Rickman in, in Robin Hood. Robin Hood. You're just like, and I, there's a, the wonderful video of him receiving a, an award where he's like, sometimes you know subtlety is overrated next time go big or go home it's that sort of like either <laughs> go for it or don't bother and I think if you're playing a a villain like like that the sort of megalomaniac cartoon villain in this really cartoony space that they've created I think sort of doing a sort of nuanced performance wouldn't wouldn't fit it's not called space opera for nothing <laughs> right to be over the top yeah i was we sort of was going we, again with our connection to tank girls we were sort of expecting a song and dance sequence somewhere in the middle uh, i would have loved it i would have yeah. loved sense eight has one but this doesn't yes sense eight has amazing just amaze balls <laughs> She's very committed to all of I'm the very... group sequences yes. in Sense8, the, the choreographed group sequences. Group sequences. Uh-huh. <laughs> Is that what we're calling them? <laughs> yes, so you don't get distracted. Uh, um, I'm just going to, I'll be in my bunk. <laughs> so you have these, again, highly choreographed sequences where sort of Rocky Horror style explosions of... of, of <sighs> alternative ways of telling stories as possible and I think that was what I loved about Tank Girl was that sort of opportunity to have a dance sequence to to suddenly introduce a new narrative um and 
Rachel Tulele. I always like to say Rachel Tulele because my sister really enjoys the fact that I say Tulele. <laughs> I don't even know if that's correctly pronounced, but I just, yeah, we say it over I feel like over she would again. have corrected us if we'd I been hope so. saying it wrong. Um, who uh, did the adaptation and, and directed Tank Girl and, and sort of incorporating these madcap moments, thinking about the sort of queering of science fiction, of placing women and... Um, non-binary characters and characters who don't fit into a simple villain or uh, hero uh, binary as well. Also, they have kangaroo spice soldier boys. I'm going to give you the genetics word for that. It's chimera. I know I sent you a picture of the mythological chimera, but in genetics, there's a chimera too. So the, the sort of splicing of genes in to make our kangaroo boys and potato head uh in this one um is our genetic chimeras i i just thought that sort of connection between those two films and especially in terms of that the queer narrative of science fiction and bringing in those those different character types and the almost the normalcy of those characters i love that of all the things that freak her out the the dog hybrid elfia rocket mm-hmm. boot thing she's like okay she's I, just, love I like that jupiter just sort of like rolls with everything uh whereas i think i'd probably be a screaming mess by that point <laughs> i don't i don't think you appreciated my pun response to you on that which is amy she cleans toilets for a living she's seen <laughs> some shit <laughs> And also, if she is actually genetically identical to the mother of those three awful people, then she's presumably a pretty smart and capable person. Except for Tuppence, because she's perfect. She can't be evil. Oh, I mean... I I can't read. (laughs) I've tried really hard to to read uh, her character name, which I can't remember. Oh, Kalik as bad, and I'm like, she's so pretty. Touch my skin. I would love to touch her skin. It's so soft. <laughs> I'm just, like, <laughs> I'm just sort of, I, I, yeah. It's, it's like Ryan Gosling and anything where I'm like, oh, but he's so lovely. And then you watch Drive, and I'm going, oh, but you didn't mean it. He's got a nice jacket though, didn't he? It would just, I do the same with with Tuppence Middleton. If it's got Tuppence in it, I'm like, love it. <laughs> it just brightens up everything that she's in. Yes, it's got two of my girls in it. It's got Tuppence Middleton, whom I love, and Gugu Mabatha Raw, even though she appears as a dear lady. And I'm not quite sure how she fitted into the narrative, but she looked beautiful doing it. And that that was why I went to see it in the first place. I've like, it's got Gugu in it. I'm, 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 I'm there. I'm like, there There's nothing is. in this film that isn't beautiful. No, this is true. <laughs> sure. I mean, some of the, the shots with the, the spaceship coming into dark, it's just gorgeous absolutely beautiful it's cgi that feel you sort of get enveloped into that world and i think that's part of the like excessive world building is you just get sucked in because once you've sort of given in you just go for it (laughs) why not if you've got an interstellar empire and and these are the the ruling family you're not just going to have some boring old spaceship out of star wars it's going to be gorgeous the architecture that that gets built into the and this this idea of like you know they're 15,000 years old and so it's both this amazing like ancient type architecture but the overlays with the then the technology and the genetic structures and the sims and it's just like 
I kept going, oh, there's elements of Dune here. Oh, there's elements of this here. Oh, there's uh, elements of here. And, and to, to where the high concept pitch was just all the science fiction. And then we get to the end and there's Pygar. Yeah. Because if you're going to have a love letter to science fiction films, you have to have Pygar in it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's... I also, like... I think Myla Kunis is a really good choice um, because we know her as someone who has that sort of gorgeous, wide-eyed, doughy look, you know, of doe-eyed and just, but then what comes out of her is so seasoned and so, yep, got it, and and down to earth and grounded. Um, and so there's a... There's, there's like an anime quality to her appearance, but then, you know, she's got a lot of nuance in terms of, you know, I like dogs. Uh, it's, it's She carries off Goofy really well, uh-huh. um, which I feel that is a, a key part of what appeals about Mila Kunis, the fact that she can be Meg from Family Guy, but she can also be an intergalactic heiress to a dynasty. Oh my I mean, she just sort God of un- in that wedding dress. I know it's the space wedding not just the best thing ever yeah, and then you get amazing. the sort of flash gordon space boot rescue from dog boy I mean it's just and the, and the graduate yes yes yeah mm. you get that same yeah the the, re- the layering of references just makes it yeah it's it's a bit of a dream and and that's what I love about science fiction generally is that rewatchability and my like entry text into science fiction being Blade Runner and the fact that that doesn't really make huge amounts of sense the first time you watch it. And then every time back over, you've got layers and layers and layers and layers and layers. Um, as a... Based on a Phil Dick book, how can it possibly make sense? <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> like, um, Apart from the fact it. that Ridley Scott never read said Phil I Dick think that's book. probably the best way to adapt <laughs> sometimes with science fiction. He's just like... <laughs> You've given me the basic outline of the world. We're just going to go for it, and and I think that world building again is so is so important. And I do, I'd love to have seen Jupiter Ascending as a TV series. I think it could have been an amazing series because there's so much world to explore, and the fact that in the movie they two try to do like space DMV uh, mixed with uh, a space wedding mixed with. Uh, international uh, intergalactic uh, capitalism. I mean, it, there, there's just so many things going on. You're like, imagine if that had been, that could have been built up as a a TV series because you'd be able to have all of those different mm. explorations because there's multiple worlds and they've, they, they have that sort of, they're the elites there, this sort of long-term, oh, what do they call them in Altered Carbon? The Oh yeah, I can't remember though. That's twisting my brain. I know what you're talking about though. Yeah, the people who live forever, uh, yeah. they're able to live beyond uh, a normal lifespan and this idea of where you lose that sense of of humanity and, and that sort of separation from... I just love that the bureaucracy, their tech is so old that it's literally in a civilization that's fifth, where people live for 15,000 years that it's still steam powered and because that is how bureaucracy always feels like they're still running off windows 95 it's 
that form was made using Windows 95 and we've not worked out how to convert it. Or you need to submit this book on a floppy disk. Ooh, what? Where, where will we find one of mm-hmm. these things and something to write it on? <laughs> like the saving of Buffy, the saving of the world in, in Buffy the Vampire Slayer is zipping on a floppy disk that falls down the side of a desk. And I'm just like, oh, the not world anymore. is not a very large data file. No, and the world cannot be saved by a floppy disk anymore. <laughs> really can't. <laughs> Before we leave Jupiter Ascending, I do want to point out one slightly dark side to it. I mean, it, it, it's incredibly fluffy, um, fabulously gorgeous, incredibly hilarious thing that everybody in, enjoys watching, unless you're a male film critic. Um, but alongside that, obviously, the narrative is about this intergalactic empire being built on drugs to keep people young. And those drugs in traditional Soylent Green fashion are created by people, by using up people to make them. Mm-hmm. So that, that just seems like a, a straightforward science fiction narrative, except this is a movie being made by trans people. And prior to estrogen being commercially synthesized, the primary source of it was something called Primarin, which we will come back to when we discuss the matrix. And Primarin is called Primarin because it is made from the urine of pregnant mares. We don't use it anymore. And the reason that we don't use it is because those poor horses were treated terribly. Right, so here is a film by trans women about a drug that makes you beautiful which is made in an incredibly cruel way. Absolutely. People wouldn't get at all. No, it is. there's a layer, again, it's that sort of layering and as you come back to it and and getting that knowledge and insight and how that changes potentially how you read the film. Because I think it was something frustrating about is that you don't get sort of a, a resolution to the film. Um, in a sort of like, there's not a neat revolu- re- resolution. There's not sort of like, we've ended the the sort of intergalactic harvesting of, of human worlds in order to create the Generation X or whatever it's called, the, the sort of um, serum. serum. Um, and that sense that it is something that's ongoing and people are willing to just sort of turn away from it almost as well um, as an, as something that's deemed necessary at, at one point and and not at another I think they're sort of the way that they incorporate those narratives are really beautiful but interesting as well yeah I think that's part of Jupiter deliberately stepping away from the chosen one narrative which is nice because that's you know stepping away from that is you know it's so grounded in Campbell's hero's journey and the male journey and and they don't you know they don't talk about that but it is a male journey um stories about women and women um you know it's it's a they don't work the same way and it's it's funny i can watch you know you can just throw on a movie and by the end of it, it even if it's like everyone in it is a woman you know all the characters are women it's all about a woman's story and by the end of it i can say no a man wrote this and directed it 
um, because it just it's it's women being slotted into male roles and it doesn't work it feels it feels wrong because that's not the kind of narrative that that women actually engage with and and the journey that they go through it's it's very different I think that that's one of the things that we've seen in these science fiction films made by women is that the structure is different the the actual themes are different the what we want to explore is different and it's a it's it's so a refreshing to not have the same freaking story over and over and over and over again um and to actually feel like oh okay this does feel like a story that could you know that i could be in or that is about me and and things that happen and so you know i think that that is is what we miss when we don't have enough stories by women you know i've i've talked about this i've i've in the last 2 years i've only read uh books by women trans women or uh, people of color or people uh, LGBTQ. And then I will read a book by a man and just be like, nope, nope, <laughs> just it's not good. Uh, and We didn't cope very well with the book uh, Altered Carbon where we liked the uh, series in a different way because of the... the I made it two chapters in and it was, was like, it was already rape narrative. Yeah, I just, I just, I was like, nope, nope, I don't need that in my brain. <laughs> I had it on audiobook and I was like, no, thank you. <laughs> I, I read a review about it. And I was like, but I really loved the series. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, it's been adapted. And yeah. that sort of like the, the the level of diversity, limited still, but it's interesting to see in that process of adaptation where you take a story that has a hotel with boobs and like how you would... <laughs> Like, and you went, no, we're going to have Edgar Allan Poe. It's going to be a themed hotel. The hotel is not going to align to a, a, a sort of masculine, a male fantasy of the perfect servile woman. Cool. So. <laughs> yes, let's not talk about Richard Morgan anymore. Thank you. No. So um, I'm really interested now to come back to The Matrix as a, a sort of a, a middle-aged woman do I, am i a middle-aged woman now i don't know apparently some, someone someone informed me that i am the other day so you know super fun uh, the students call me i get mum occasionally and i'm like oh god i am oh no um so i was my, my grad students just like to send me the steve buscemi hello <laughs> fellow kids uh <laughs> meme and and then laugh as i cry softly in the corner <laughs> Whereas I get, you know what that's about, Amy, you're young. And I'm like, I'm like a good 20 years older than you. And they're like, what? You're babyfist. So I was only 15 when The Matrix came out. And for me, that was a big part of my story of science fiction, of science fiction being a male space. And that as a, a woman fan who was brought into science fiction through her father's passion for science fiction his passion for 70s uh fiction so we watched while everyone else was watching star wars i was watching silent running the murder suicide space forest movie all i remember about it is the little robots and uh the space forest the murder suicide bit when i watched it back with students as an adult i was like what this is not the (laughs) narratives that i remember um and the matrix for me 
fitted into that sort of period of cinema when I went to university and, and to film school it was the movie that all the, the men had and I was one of two three women in my film school year and Matrix was always the, the boys favorite film and it was this sort of this idea that it was part of a series of films that had engaged with ideas around masculinity in the late 90s early 2000s that was taught as part of a course that I took alongside these sort of masculine films like Seven, Fight Club, American Beauty, Office Space, these sort of films about damaged white masculinity uh, with Neo coded in that same way as the sort of white drone worker longing to be free from. And I just, I struggled with The Matrix for a really long time because of that way that it had been framed for me as as a teenager in those formative film years. So um, I'm sort of, Refinding the Matrix has been really, again, joyful for, for me, and it's part of the reason that I wanted to do Jupiter Ascending first, so that I didn't end up comparing Jupiter Ascending to the Matrix, which is bound <laughs> up with a lot of my own feelings about science fiction and my experiences as a woman in science fiction, as as being the one woman at a midnight screening, and and people going, "Oh, you like boy things? Do you like girl things too?" And I'd be like, "Are they different?" okay thank you (laughs) so uh, the matrix for me is is quite a complex text in terms of gender in terms of my own identity as a science fiction fan um and the way that it was framed for me educationally uh in the early 2000s where it was like the it text of of sort of the film school um era does someone else want to follow on from my sad tale of (laughs) the matrix (laughs) Yeah, I, I was a lot older than 15 when The Matrix came out. I'm not going to give anything away. Um, but one of the things that occurred to me when it came out, of course, was, are we over cyberpunk now? Because Neuromancer came out in 1984, and like Trinity is clearly Molly Millions. Uh, so, you know, this is a little late, Hollywood. Have, haven't you, like, caught up yet? Um, so there's that side, but obviously it's computers, and, and this was the time when boys were slowly but surely taking over the computer industry. But it, it was it was moving from a thing that, that women had had a, a role in to something where men were saying, no, only men can do this. So it's As they do with anything that we do that is good. Uh, but anything that can make money. Yes. As soon as it becomes a money-making thing, it shifts from being... Uh, a hobby or a, a repetitive task that women can do to something that involves male ability and and sort of creativity and that because women couldn't possibly have that when it comes to science and technology. Well I, I must admit that I wasn't terribly interested in The Matrix when it came out because it was a, a film about something that was, was quite old and which I was starting to understand had done something quite bad to science fiction because back in the 70s we had a whole load of great women science fiction writers, you know, Sue Le Guin and Wanda McIntyre and Joanna Wicks and goodness knows who else. And then cyberpunk happened and pretty much only Pat Cadigan got in. <laughs> Everybody else, it was a cockfest. Um, yeah. And, you know, that, that put the, the cause of women science fiction writers back quite a long way. So again, another reason to not be particularly interested in the Matrix. Um, plus, of course, I was you know, relatively freshly transitioned at the time, and I had all of my own 
<clears throat> problems coping with that. So there, there were other things um, occupying my mind. And even if I had seen it and tweaked that it was a trans allegory, that, that might not have helped. Yeah, because I was, I was 20. And I, that time in my life was all up in the air because I had been a scientist and had just figured out that that was not uh, the, the path that my life was going to take. Um, I was in a PhD program for, for genetics at the time. And so like on the, on the side of this is really interesting and it's a fun narrative and, and the, the bullet effects and bullet time and, and that sort of thing. Interesting. Um, but I had so much going on in my life that, that I, I couldn't see much. And I had come out of a university, Texas A&M University, which I love, but does have the largest uh, group of college Republicans in the United States. Um, I was very ostracized there. I was someone who was pierced, uh, which was whoa, whoa, bad. I didn't even have tattoos yet. Um, and, and I was considered, you know, a heathen and I was atheist. And, you know, I gave my, my final undergraduate dissertation was, was not even on evolution. It was on the history of the theory of evolution. I thought they were going to stone me. Um, I love I, your stories. When, when I gave my when I gave my final talk, you know, everyone else got you know applause and yay, good job. And I just got these stony stares from these cowboys, and I was just like, I'm gonna leave now. Bye. Um, and and so for me, it was the religious allegory in the Matrix that that really hit home, which is you know that that you're in the society that tells you who you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to believe in and what you're supposed to think. And I, I couldn't do that. I'd find, found myself incapable of conforming. And, and it's sort of the history of, I, I, you know, I said, was messaging earlier with a friend and it was, you know, it was all about the, the narrative of the difficult woman that until you're branded a difficult woman, you haven't really lived, you know, as a woman in the world. Um, because if you how dare you not be compliant <laughs> right how dare you not be a trad wife or whatever it is that you know and I, and I have friends ex-friends from there who I was very very close to and who some years later messaged me and were like oh you're clearly part of the weird lefty you know my own dad you're some weird lefty you know bizarro person and I'm like well but I was taught to think differently and you raised me to think differently so now that I think differently, I'm apparently an idiot. Um, and, and so I think for me, the matrix was, okay, I'm the only awake person around. Either I need to go and find more awake people. I'm not going to use the word woke because it has been corrupted. Um, but that's what it felt like, you know, and I think the matrix gave us that kind of concept to say, I, I recognize something different about my world than everybody else does. And and why do you keep, why do you, why does this world persist then? Don't we all feel different in some way? And, and I think the answer sadly is, well, no. Um, but those of us who do, 
they want to they want to treat it like you know you're an extra limb that grew let's cut it off and you know you're the vestigial tail or something let's cut it off and pretend it never happened and if they can't erase us then you know let's you know and it could be an entire uh group of people it could be an entire continent of people it can be an entire gender of people it can be an entire everything of people if you're not conforming with that status quo and so on some level that's where the matrix worked for me Cheryl you mentioned the fact that Warner Brothers cut out particular characters and and sort of elements do you know can you give some examples of things that you know were taken out or but it's the specific thing that we know was changed because Lana and Lily have talked about it is that the original plan was for the character of Switch to be male um, in one of the worlds and female I think male in the real world and female in the That's matrix because once you get into the matrix it's all about who you are not about physical bodies and things um, but Warner Brothers decided that that wasn't acceptable that would be too confusing for the, the viewers so they, they cut it out and that would have been an obvious clue that this was a trans movie yeah but there's a whole bunch of other stuff there I know I you know things like the the fact that um, Agent Smith keeps referring to Neo as Mr. Anderson, right? Mr. 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 All the time. And Anderson, is, it was his name before they became Neo. Yes. Mm -hmm. So it's all deliberate dead naming. Um, and, and the red pill. The red pill is Prima in. It was red. Mm -hmm. That's what... <laughs> That totally makes sense. As soon as you said that about Jupiter ascending, and and I was like, well, that's the that's the Matrix too. Is is this you know, because you know I know how mares were you know because I, my my first degree was in equine science, and so yeah, I know all of that and um and and how it was made and and what was done and the the imagery of the the bodies being used as batteries in the Matrix is very very similar um to to you know that which we strap dairy cows up to and 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 pregnant mares for the production of hormones um i have to talk to you about horses later but <laughs> excellent yay yeah. we can do a uh, whole other podcast i need an expert in horse biology excellent there you go <laughs> She checks all my science on things. I um, I had a paper come out today on the exorcist and neuroimaging, and conveniently, I've got uh, Lyle and her husband who can cover neurobiology, DNA, any sort of science that I sort of weave into things. I'm like, did I use the right word? Have I made this up? We're <laughs> you just check my science. We're an excellent trivial pursuit team. You are, but <laughs> overly competitive. It's not a fun game for anyone else. Like they're the people who are like, I think you'll find you worded that question wrong and it was misleading and therefore we were right. So we're just going to give ourselves the point there. Uh, I went to a pub quiz with them once and I will never, ever, ever, ever do it again. No, never, 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 never. Sorry. Um, Sorry. The Matrix <laughs> is a trans allegory. Uh, Absolutely. Lana and Lily have, have said very clearly that it is. Mm -hmm. And I'm very much looking forward to Matrix 4 now that... Lana is free to do whatever she wants with it. Exactly. I, you know, and it, um, I was just thinking as, as you were talking about that, about, um, you know, about how, how, what a cockfest cyberpunk was. 
Um, but imagine if James Tiptree Jr.'s, the girl who was plugged in, was the progenitor of the cyberpunk movement instead of, you know, William Gibson's Neuromancer, because the girl who was plugged in was all about, you know, all about this idea of, of, of beauty and being who you could be in. And so people wanted to be in, they wanted to be plugged in um, because they were separated from the, the dissonance from their own bodies. Um, and, and to an extent, and I think when I read that, I, you know, I've been struggling in the, in the last few years with weight, uh, and, and that expectation as well. And so I read that and, and totally identified and was like, yeah, you know, to be able to, to plug in and just be who I feel like I am. Um, and that was, you know, that James Tiptree Jr.'s writing in the fifties and sixties, um, and of course she got outed in the seventies after which case she just wasn't a very good writer anymore. Was she? Um, and, and the, the, the best thing they could say about, about her was that she wrote like a man. That was the, that was the, uh, that was how good she was. Um, but the girl who was plugged in was just, I, I keep going back to it of just to, to, be able to project yourself as you see yourself, um, as you want to see yourself. And there's so much power in that, uh, that, that then, you know, in these other narratives gets where we see how traumatizing it is to have that stripped away. Um, and, and the fact that, that we force so many people uh, through culture and through societal expectations, um, you know, through, transphobia and homophobia and sexism and misogyny and toxic masculinity um that it just it, it just never ends it's hopeless i'm gonna go to bed now <laughs> i'm gonna go take some prozac uh but yeah it's you know chocolate. and I, I have some chocolate <laughs> yes That's chocolate better. keeps the dementors away <laughs> But yeah, it's, you know, and I watched, I, you know, I, my, my own brother, you know, I've watched him battle with, with uh, going back and forth with uh, potential eating disorders and, 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 you know, and that manifestation of the misogyny um, that happens, uh, you know, in society of, of all those expectations. And you're like, oh, okay, if I could just plug in there and, and have this happen, if we could all just be humans, that would be nice apart from humans who suck well you know lana and lily are both big science fiction fans they may well have read tip tree oh i can't imagine they haven't i mean but that sort of idea of plugging in as rather than being escape being an opportunity to be your your true self because you're not restricted by those same uh, expectations when you're physically present in a in a particular space sure. um, and I, I think that sort of is I, I think something that I missed that first time that I, I watched it is I was so caught up in the narratives that surrounded it concerning masculinity and this being a film that was sort of like a crystallization of, of, of men at this time and the irony of how wrong those readings were is is quite comforting to me as someone who struggled with with those types of um issues of, of being a girl who liked 
boy things but also I'm very hyper feminine because I spent my teenage years being bullied for not being feminine enough to be a girl um and that was a big part of my sort of childhood of of them reacting and and dressing this particular way and then I really stand out in those sort of hyper male spaces I'm wearing a 1950s sort of Lolita style dress with victory rolls on my hair and and everyone else there is in nerdy t-shirts and is, is male presenting I would just feel really really out of place um, and, and thankfully I had a, a parent who was really supportive of having a daughter who was really into science fiction never has anyone been so proud of what their daughter's uh, PhD was in like so it's sort of having that that sort of support but at the same time feeling like I didn't quite fit into that and I still get it I, I don't sort of fit a, a particular science fiction idea of sort of what I should look like and how I should talk and I have had the thing where people have assumed from what I write about that I'm a male writer and I've had sort of um, feedback from reviewers that have said that the author needs to reconsider his approach to this. And I'm like, just because I'm writing about science fiction and I'm writing specifically about 70s male dominated science fiction, it doesn't mean that I can't be a woman. And that, that it just sort of fits into that whole narrative I have about science fiction, which is part of the reason that I'm doing the project is to try for me to reclaim that that space is something that has always been mine but is also emerging more um as a place where other voices are possible and even if they are forced into a closet of, of sorts they they can still be present in that artwork this is quote from uh, lily's acceptance speech at the glad awards from 2016 uh, where she talks about this idea of being um she says there's a critical eye being cast on Lana and I's work through the lens of our transness. This is a cool thing because it's an excellent reminder that art is never static. And I love this idea that they, even if they weren't necessarily intending for those things to be read into their work originally, or if elements were there that weren't necessarily cogn- um, consciously ad- added, they were there as part of their experience, their writing, their, it, they are part of those particular texts. Yeah, and I will defend to the death the right of male critics to read The Matrix as a, a film about masculinity because that's their right. You know, we're, we're not going to go all Kathleen Stock on this. The, <laughs> people see films, they read books through their own eyes and through their own minds, and they, they come up with their own reactions to it, which are heavily based on who they are as a person. So it's entirely legitimate for people to see The Matrix as a boys' action movie. Uh, at the same time, the creators have said that it's a trans allegory and the trans elements in there are pretty obvious if you know how to look for them. Yeah. And, I think and- in 1999, none of us were looking for them. You know, none of, well, none of the, the cis people were looking for them. They just, you know, weren't on our radar. Um, Plus we have Galaxy Quest. So, I mean, who cares about the Matrix? <laughs> Sorry. I love it. I, I also love, love Matrix, uh, the Galaxy Quest. It's more Alan Rickman, and and that's always a. It, it, it has got Alan Rickman, and if, if you were somebody who went to science fiction conventions at that time, it was just so funny. It's brilliant, just brilliant, and the fact that 
it's very you know that no one from the cast of star trek likes william shatner and (laughs) (laughs) reproducing that is just i love uh, galaxy quest is amazing do we want to talk about sensei yes please (laughs) yay yeah so i i think as a career I, i think sensei just felt like a just such a beautiful flowering of all those ideas and those multiple worlds um, and making it really earth-based as well is one of the things that I really um, like about Sense8. Um, and again, we watched it really excited because it was Twyka and uh, the Wachowskis and yeah, and Jamie Clayton and uh, the woman who plays Armorita. I mean, these sort of mm. like amazing collection of uh, of actors um, and casting in a way that makes it transnational has that sense of it being about everything and everywhere as separate and connected at the same time. And and I really, I really love that being able to recognize different languages and and it, as you can enter in and out of those worlds according to what languages you speak or what cultures you understand. I thought there was a really beautiful opportunity to explore all of those spaces um, through these characters and also the other characters within um, Sensei. Yeah, they, they clearly, Talk to us about Sensei. They <laughs> tried, you know, and, and you know, they're, they're very Californian, bless them. And I've lived <laughs> in California for several years, so I, I know what Californians are like. They want to do the right thing, really they do. Um, but I, I sort of watched the first episode or two of Sense8 and I thought, you know, I, I can see one or two people maybe getting a little upset about this. And I looked on Twitter and one of my Indian friends was, stereotypes! <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, um, they, they tried. Um, but clearly they can't be the entire world. No. <laughs> they, they're not, they don't have that authenticity for everything that they do but they do have authenticity for the trans element and that I was really happy with albeit it was very difficult to watch at times oh I can imagine I... You know, Lana has said publicly that some of what happens to Nomi is based on what happened to her as a kid and I just want to give her a hug yeah. mm-hmm mm-hmm uh, uh... it's so painful you know and it's so the sequences where she's trapped in the in the hospital and her mother is is doing you know has has basically kidnapped her and is about to forcibly lobotomize her um and that still goes on it's just it just feels it feels watching it like how could this exist in the world? This is so evil. This is such a horrible thing to do to another human being. And yet, even if it's not to that extreme, even if you don't have that kind of power in terms of being able to kidnap someone and and have a doctor who says, look, you've got a brain tumor. I'm going to cut it out of you. And really, I'm just going to, I'm going to cut out you, the you of you I'm going to cut out. Um, that in other ways that that happens, whether it's families ostracizing uh, you know their children or culture saying you know uh, conversion therapy yeah 
because a lot Absolutely. of the lobotomy narratives fit into longer histories of um gay conversion for want of a better term and, and the sort of psychiatric treatment of um queerness as a as a mental illness that could literally be cut out and forgotten about and that that sort of um medical crudeness in which that was approached um the yeah, treatment I mean. the that that presentation and that experience um is covered a lot in sensei and i think it's also a lot of cutting out that which is feminine i mean i mean in in, and thinking about medicine and how how misogynistic medicine is you know that if you're a woman and you 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 don't conform to everything well you're hysterical and that originates from your womb so we're going to cut that out or do something so that so that you know it's not wandering around your body wreaking havoc because the thing that defines you as woman makes you crazy i i see you aristotle i know what you did exactly it's just just i just want them to all sit down and shut up and stop telling us that it's all in our head um the only reason that it's all in our head is because they're gaslighting us um and and yeah i just that that whole absolute loss of autonomy um through because other people can't accept you for who you are and I think there's a there's a parallel to sort of how we do representation on screen that women's representation on screen as screen has often been about women's pain and about being victims of being survivors of revenge, rape, revenge narratives as the sort of uh, promising young woman sort of type sort of, uh, narratives and. Are we still in such an early stage of trans representation that you think we're going to continue to show the painful narrative rather than exploring trans narratives more fully? Are we still stuck in representing trans experience of one of of pain and isolation and and separation from from family and culture almost? And I, I think although Naomi is part of the sensate outside of that space is it can be very different for her you know I, I think we've only just got to that point because prior to that we were fully in the trans people are a joke let's make fun of them right if you haven't seen disclosure I was just about to say that <laughs> yes or they must be sex workers or you know which there's not just one role for for any given group of people. So it is a massive step forward for trans people's pain to actually be accurately represented on film, and, and in in collaboration as well. That the some beautiful a part of the advertising for um, disclosure is there's a lovely conversation, a really interesting conversation between Jamie Clayton and Lana uh, Wachowski talking about that experience of writing know me as a an act of sort of coming out an act of working through those experiences and we're still very much at that early stage of of representation it's not subtle is it you've got a trans woman character and she's called know me (laughs) marks um so yeah we've 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 just made a start now hollywood traditionally lags a long way behind written fiction 
And in written fiction, we've now got things like Tory Peters and Detransition Baby, where trans people are finally getting to make art. And it doesn't matter if trans people are, are bad or they, they make wrong choices and stuff like that. But we're still a long way away from that in movies, I think. Mm. Yeah, Hollywood is still working with steam-powered machinery, <laughs> unfortunately. And that form on Windows 95. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> I, I mean, mean it, had a bit, bit of fun along the way. Yeah, and I, I, as well, it's it's being that first representation, that first intersection of science fiction and transness in a space that, although not perfect, allowed for those discussions to take place, for that to be a space of creative practice, of creative research as they worked through their own uh, issues on screen giving representation in a way that had not been present before. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoy is the wrong word. Um, I, I found it very sobering, but Disclosure was a really beautiful documentary. And, and also the way that that particular documentary was advertised as it, it, it didn't necessarily matter if it, it reached a large cishet audience. What it mattered was that it would be seen by a trans audience to know that there was that discussion going on that there were other people feeling these same experiences and feelings and I I think that was a really interesting way for me to approach that particular documentary because of the way it had been advertised through discussions around people like uh, Jamie Clayton and Lana Wachowski thinking about their commitment to that particular documentary and then how that potentially feeds into shifts in Hollywood, although they will be glacial. Um, I mean, we, we've got Pose now, so, you know, we're, we're moving things along slowly and, and presumably in the future there will be more stuff. And there, there are other TV things as well. I mean, I, I don't watch stuff really that isn't science fiction. I don't have time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a critic. I've got a lot of books to read. I've got a lot of TV to watch and movies to watch. And, and I can't do the, the mainstream stuff too. But I occasionally talk to Ros Caveney, who you know, knows more about the, the mainstream stuff. And there are other good trans-themed TV series coming up. Um, and yeah, you know, stuff gets flung into entertaining spaces. I adore She-Ra, for example. Oh, she was and and made by a a non-binary creator who Amy and I have loved since since she was not you know since they were an art student. Um, uh, we dressed up as one of their cartoon strips for Halloween one year. Uh, we went as gender flipped Thor and Loki and acted out sections of of the cartoon ginger yeah. hayes but i can't think of the real noel stevenson noel stevenson uh that sort of fan fanish connection to that of, of sort of having a way of connecting with this again fandom and experience that was really masculinized and actually really taking a joy in the queerness of these uh massive franchises and i think that's where we really got into uh, noel's work and then through nimona and through uh Ra as well where you have um these fascinating characters that are just there as part of the world. Um, Nimona and... too, such a trans allegory. I mean, so, so clearly as, as Noelle was beginning to come to terms with her identity and, and who, who they felt they were in terms of 
embodiment and you know because Nimona is a shapeshifter uh, and can become anything she wants to be uh, which I think it, it's really fascinating to to look back on Nimona which was uh, Noelle's undergraduate dissertation that then went huge and has allowed How humbling uh, for those uh, right <laughs> I know right <laughs> And it has allowed the rest of us, you know, and has allowed their journey journey to who they are now. Um, and, and so that's just... That's I think the, so that capacity watch. for art to allow that and, and science fiction to allow that because you're in a world that doesn't necessarily have the same rules as uh, the real world does. You can create characters who are a we, literally. I mean, the sensate, I am we. We are this group together um i went to a excellent talk about a, a new edited collection on sensate that's being released um this year and um, one of the things that i took away from that particular talk i want to say it was Dol- dolores uh, tierney who was one of the speakers but i'll put it in into the um Show details for this podcast so that um, anyone can look up that particular collection. And the thing that I took away from that talk was this idea that Sensei allowed for a trans film grammar to develop, that you were, the way that it was filmed and put together, the transness was not simply in the narrative and the story and the characters and, and know me as that sort of single representation, but actually across the way that it was filmed and put together, the way that the characters fluidly work between each other there's a beautiful fight sequence I think in one of the early episodes uh where Naomi is able to call upon the experience of Will the police officer and Sun the um martial artist martial artist uh and 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 bring those experiences together and the way that it is fluidly explored and expressed through not only the narrative but also the way that it's filmed that was one of my sort of big takeaways from that particular discussion is thinking about how it wasn't simply through the story or the narrative but the way that that particular story was being being told that you have this fluid cluster uh Naomi is trans does that mean that the whole cluster now has elements of transness to them how do they experience that sense of fluidity uh as a group within a cluster you can't lie to each other Right? You, you understand the rest of the cluster, and, and that means that people cannot simply impose their idea on other people. If, if I am trans and I'm part of the cluster, everybody else in the cluster knows how I feel. They can't deny it. Uh, it's just, it's so lovely. Uh, there are, yeah, and, and I can see from uh, uh, my world put my world cinema hat on as a a film lecturer yes there are lots of problems in terms of um racial representation in terms of of their sort of different national elements they bring in sort of sun as kung fu even though she's korean and there's sort of like little moments where they've stopped like like oh you're so close and you're mm, almost um and then other moments where it just works really beautifully but the sort of much like Jupiter Ascending, the concepts, the ideas, the story is just so fascinating and complex. And the more that I delve into it, the more I sort of fall in love with, especially that main sensate uh, group. Hmm. I think for me, it was it was the moment when in in the first uh, what 
group choreography scene. <laughs> is that what we're calling it? Orgy, darling. Well, orgy. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, when Leto is is having sex with his partner and Will is experiencing Will, who's like this Chicago cop on the south side, and he's in, in his bro masculine working out phase, and he's experiencing that whole thing. I was just like, this is awesome. This is so cool because uh, you you can't help but accept that and feel what the other person feels, even though it's not part of your own identity or even orientation or anything like that. And I just, I, I, I was hooked. I loved it. But it also puts the knife in totally because the bad guys in it are, are essentially doctors. Yes. Right? Yes. And the bad guys in trans people's lives are also doctors. In lots and of people's lives. Yeah. Looks exactly like a person that many, many trans people hate. Yes. This was that a guy. interesting, this was a revelation for, for Lyle and I to get that insight into to Mr. Whispers and that particular character of Milton Bailey Brand, which takes the middle name of Ray Blanchard and the surname of J. Michael Bailey who is the, a, a very a more contemporary proponent of this of this particular th- theory? I'm not going to call it a theory. No. It's just, well, I mean, it's they just are nastiness. Sexologists of us all, psychiatrists. They both have deeply, deeply disturbing views about trans people, which, if if you are trans yourself, you know, are utterly ridiculous. Um, but they have power and authority which we don't they have oodles of male privilege yes um and doctor privilege um so i just love the fact that lana and lily put them in there and and stuck the knife in because boy do they deserve it mm-hmm. yeah, yeah and here's I, a horrible character grosser than, no. than reading blanchard's no, we yeah. What we you ended up doing up in is your mouth a little reading bits of it and then going no, 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 and then found a critique of someone just sort of taking it apart. And I was like, oh, I mean, I, I could spend time taking apart autogynophilia, but I don't want to bore your listeners. And it came Michael Bailey is rather easier. He's the one who who concluded that trans women were naturally suited to sex work um, as a result of studying half a dozen. Latina trans women sex workers by availing himself of their services. This is this is like the people in the Confederate South going, oh, black people are disposed to being slaves. It's the yep. same thing. It is. And it's just it's grotesque. But I, I like that they have now that space to be able to do that and that that is a reference point and sensate that is instantly recognizable to those in the trans community that is not necessarily there for uh cishet viewers or, or those who haven't come across uh blanchard's work because it's a passing reference not something that's trying to redefine who you are and how you're going to be understood and defined in in legal and medical spaces um and that sort of discussions around uh, the legal and the medical and the trans narrative is, is so part of that particular series as well of, as being part of something and being separate from it, being um, defined and understood as yourself whilst also being part of that 
complex community um i thought that they yeah that was a difficult read for us in terms of of seeing how a scientist's perspective or very gendered and transphobic perspective has been embedded into science and this continuing idea and so one of my specialisms is looking at well, both of us science communication and and fighting back against the idea that science is not political we hear this all the time anytime we talk about science communication people are yeah but science isn't political science is science, science is, and you're like science is truth and i'm like, like mm, mm, no it's not no uh, there was, yeah, there was, that's not, there was a Telegraph article that basically um, told a load of science historians how to suck eggs about how complicated Darwin was. And we were like, this is, there's an entire discipline devoted to unpacking the complexity of, of science. And, and basically our recurring little drum of science is political, science is culturally embedded and science is something that can be reinterpreted and changed and you know this idea that a particular like the vaccines causes autism idea is something that has been embedded through this narrative of of science as truth even though it's been retracted even though it's been um once it's scientific to begin with yeah once it's embedded into that idea of science it's very difficult to extricate it to make it go away <laughs> you know, there, there is a difference between science which is a discipline that you follow and you study things and you come up with hypotheses and then you try and disprove them and science mm-hmm. which religion which the newspapers push that this is true and these things are not true mm-hmm. and almost always what they they push as science is not true and deeply simplistic mm-hmm absolutely and therefore easily understandable by their readers yes in making something binary and easy and this or that makes it easier to weave into a story but it doesn't actually no different from saying god said yes (laughs) it's it's the the scientists say and you're like well that's very it's dogma it's just dogma all over again and what they don't seem to get about it is that if you're if you're a scientist, as soon as someone presents evidence that conflicts with whatever you've you've got your status quo, as a scientist, you're meant to change. You're meant to go, okay, I'm going to look at your evidence and make sure it actually is evidence. But yeah, okay, no, we were wrong. Let's let's and and that's something where, you know, talk to trans people, talk to women, and they'll tell you that you're crazy ass theories are wrong um just because you're a white dude doesn't mean that you know everything in fact it means that you in terms of lived experience you know very little so um we do um, history as well you know but now our government thinks that history is what you get reading ladybird books when you're five yes they're going to cut all our funding and we'll just you know yeah we'll just live on air like cats <laughs> on that note uh is there anything else that you'd like to add uh cheryl thank you so much for for giving up your time to speak to us and and sharing your 
insight and and sort of giving us that sort of opportunity to talk through it in a, in a, a safe environment for us as I as a, as well as I hope for you in terms of uh, thinking about the Wachowskis in terms of their transness um, and also how much more I have to learn in order to really understand these particular texts and their writers. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to, to come and talk about their work. I mean, I'm not normally a, a film critic, but obviously I do take a particular interest in what they do and I will continue to take an interest in, in what they do. But hopefully there will be some other trans-themed um, science fiction because, because science fiction is so easy to make trans-themed. Uh, I should, by the way, give a, a shout out to J. Michael Straczynski, who was the main scriptwriter on Sense8 and also created the best science fiction television series ever made. <laughs> yeah, somebody didn't like it, but uh, never mind. Um, and yeah, no, there's there's going to be new um, new trans stuff coming out because we're we're here and we're in, involved in everything and we're going to start making more of this stuff yeah this the, brilliant the egg is starting to crack and we're gonna Good. see more uh representation and opportunities i hope um and people who will support that all the way through and amazing stories because the white male story is tired and old and done and we don't we just don't need that story anymore i'm so bored of it yeah. so thanks for joining us on women make science fiction um and we hope you'll join lyle and i uh, the next time unless they replace us with wigand lichen slices robots or just men <laughs>